Suze Anderson is an assistant professor of museum studies at Washington, D.C.'s George Washington University and the co-host of the Museo Punks podcast. Prior to joining GW, she was the director of audience experience at the Baltimore Museum of Art, where she was responsible for creating a seamless experience for visitors to the museum and across its digital platforms. Her research has focused on the intersection of technology and culture, and particularly on the impact of digital technologies on the museum. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to Ms. Suze Anderson, who will introduce her panel. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It is so lovely to be here and to be in a room that already feels like we are a community engaged in a discussion. It's been one of the nice things about sitting here throughout today's sessions. So we are talking today about whether art, the arts and art makes us better citizens. And I have a really interesting panel uh, of women here to talk about this discussion uh, with us today. So I'm going to go and introduce everyone uh, down the line, then we're going to go through some very brief statements to give you a sense of where everyone's coming from before we get into this really meaty subject. We've already been discussing things like the intrinsic value of the arts today, and I think this panel is a really nice opportunity for us to complicate that a little bit and to unpack a few ideas. So. On, uh, on my media right, we have Luz Maria Sanchez, who is a transdisciplinary artist, researcher, and academic. She serves as the chair of the Department of Arts and Humanities at Universidad Autónoma Metropolitana Lerma in Mexico. Hello. Hello. Uh, then uh, next good. down, we have uh, Gail Dexter-Lord, who is co-founder and presenter of Lord Cultural Resources Planning and Management. Dedicated to the creation of cultural capital worldwide, her firm has become the world's largest cultural professional practice with over 2,000 projects in 57 countries. Gail, welcome. <laughs> uh, next, we have Lean Snej, who is the director of the Arts and Culture Program at the Middle East Institute in Washington, DC. She previously led regional arts projects across the Middle East with the British Council in Beirut. And finally, we have Lynn Connor, who is a cultural policy theorist, theatre and dance historian and playwright. She's also chair of the Department of Theatre at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Her latest book is titled Audience Engagement and the Role of Arts Talk in the Digital Era. Panelists, welcome. Uh, Lynn, I might, since I finished with you, I might actually start with you. Do you want to just give us a sense of where you're coming from in this conversation about whether the arts can make us better citizens? I, I'm happy to, thank you. So I think there are two identities that everyone in this room shares. We are all audience members who experience the arts, and we're all citizens of nation states, of cities and towns, and of smaller localized communities. In both of these identities, as audience members and as citizens, our ability to function well relies on the capacity for free thinking. The English word free is derived from the Latin liber, as in liberty, from the old English word leoden, meaning to grow, and from the Sanskrit word rohati, meaning one climbs. We have to learn to be free thinkers. We have to climb and to grow into our capacity to evaluate, to reason, to negotiate, to listen, to compromise, and to empathize. In my work with arts organizations, 
I argue that our experiences as audience members have the potential to teach us these skills and aptitudes. People who are given the opportunity to talk about their experiences with the arts learn how to develop and then to defend their own aesthetic judgments. People who are encouraged to share their reactions to a work of art with other audience members and with artists learn how to listen and to consider other points of view. These are qualities that also define being a productive and engaged citizen. The ancient Greeks knew it when they used drama as a form of civic dialogue. The annual competition that gave us Oedipus Rex is a prime example of that. Sophocles' exploration of what was to his Athenian audience a well-known story about the downfall of a mythic king became, through metaphor, a debate on the qualities of leadership in an emerging democracy. The arts exist to help us learn to think freely. They give us a way to put experience into meta uh, metaphor and thus to grapple, grapple with that experience in nuanced ways. They teach us the skills to interpret this complicated and difficult world. Amazing. So then, Luce, as an active artist, I might get where you're, where you're coming from in this position, because I think each of us have these very different perspectives, and I'd love to hear where you're coming from. Well, thank you, thank you. Um, I, I come more from, uh, uh, from my practice, let's say. I'm a scholar, as you said before, but uh, the way I approach uh, the art uh, process uh, is uh, always coming from long research of my subject, uh, and during that research, I include the community that I'm working with mm -hmm. in each project, depending. And for me, it's very important, uh, the transdisciplinary approach, that is to work with um, scholars from other fields, professional from other fields, call it sociologists or archeologists or um, policy makers, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, it's very important that the the community involved, being involved during the process, but also after the process of the art, art, art work, per se, that is in the activation of the work. And I think uh, what has been said here for the whole morning and as, as pretty um, similar, I mean, I can, I can uh, feel uh, included in this kind of discussion because um, I really think that art is a better way to maybe uh, put outside uh, knowledge that maybe is being made in the universities or in other like uh, spaces for research and that cannot get out in a, in a proper way and really um, socialize kind of uh, the, the, the concepts around it. So I think uh, art in that sense and for this kind of a uh, table that we are in, this kind of conversation, the answer will be yes. It will be make better citizens, for, ah. sure, for sure. Okay, we'll, we'll have to pick up on that because I, I might push back on that a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, Lean, what about you? Where are you? Where are you coming from? Yes, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for inviting me to join this conversation. Um, so I'm coming from the transformative power of the arts, which we have been discussing uh, since this morning, and the ability of the arts to build better citizens, more open and tolerant and empathetic societies. And my entry point to this conversation today is really based on my experience of the arts and culture sector in the arts. 
and uh, the importance of the arts in the social transitions and the social transformations, even as a response to conflict that has been perhaps known more under the name of the Arab Spring uh, that you know a lot of you around the room may have heard of. And the central role that the arts have played in all of those processes. So the arts have been the way in which younger generations in the Middle East have resisted in a non-violent way and have also articulated a forward-looking Middle East that is neither the dictatorships nor the extremists and the way in which they have really demanded that they are regarded as um, citizens in a dignified and respectful way, and demanded that there are spaces available to them to exercise that citizenship. And we can talk about that later. Yeah, absolutely. And Gail, do you want to... must be me next. Yes, okay, this is you. Okay, so firstly, I want to say that it's a, a complete honor to be in... Uh, the sanctuary state of California. <laughs> I want, I really want to say, you know, we, we have to, we have to, we have to change my, my introduction from 57 countries to 58 countries because of, you know, we've worked a lot in California, but being a sanctuary state <laughs> is, is really, it's really its own category. And I, I want to say that of course it defines citizenship as a very positive thing, to be a citizen in a sanctuary state. It, I think we could all kind of understand what it is. But my, my thesis is that art makes some people better citizens and some people worse citizens. <laughs> and, uh, and so, um, and so I, I guess I'd like to just say, uh, make a bit of a definition of uh, good citizenship. But, but I think actually it's not an absolute. It's such a relativist concept that with a little bit of imagination, that idea that artists help us uh, to imagine uh, reality uh, more thoroughly, they can see that it can also backfire. So I think that people would agree that good citizenship includes uh, kind of both a balance. It's a balance between bridging and bonding. You know, when bonding gets too big, uh, you get into problems. It's a, it's, a, it's a balance also between social cohesion and individuality. You know, too much social cohesion is a kind of a good definition of totalitarianism. And sometimes we, I think we think that, well, if we create social cohesion in a theater, that this is somehow a model for good citizenship. Well, it probably would be in California, but there are certain places where it probably wouldn't be. And then I think that, the, but the one, uh, the little balance that I like the best, and I think perhaps the most effective, is that it's a balance between critical thinking and empathy. There's a lot of research and empathy, and these are two themes that have come up in the other sessions, and there's a lot of research that shows that empathy, particularly in the 19th century novel, was really the beginning of a concept of human rights. That, that ability to empathy is the ability to really understand the importance of the rights of other human beings. And, and in fact, uh, we're even extending that notion to speciation and to other species these days, which is, which is also very, very important. So looking at, 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 at art, just say one more point on this, through the lens of soft power, because I've been writing a lot and I have a book on soft power and museums and cities. Um, soft power is about uh, it's about influencing people's behavior through persuasion and agenda setting. And so uh, the good and the bad side of this citizenship argument is that there are many aspects, many ways that people try to use, it's a very important bad word here, use the arts to uh, set agendas. And I would argue that the art market is particularly problematic. The art market is a form of hard power. 
We need to, I believe we need to recognize that. And that so many of our institutions, not just museums, but principally museums, are really dominated by people who play in the art market. And I want to, and they use that as a way of ultimately influencing the content and the direction of our cultural institutions. And I love the distinction that uh, Professor Tepper made in his last presentation between about me and bigger than me. I think that that force actually is very fine with me. And I think that maybe that force isn't so good with bigger than me. And maybe we'll get into that. Yeah, I think we definitely will. So one of the things that I'm hearing from this discussion already is we're starting to talk about concept of what a citizen is and what a good citizen is. And whether um, citizenship is even assumed. I mean, are, are you automatically a citizen or is citizenship that actually is bestowed upon you? And what does the arts play in that? Lean, I wonder, you coming sort of from the Middle East, I think that would, you'd have some really interesting uh, yeah. ways of speaking to that. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, um, the arts play a big role in that. And, and citizenship, you know, is, is if we just are going to take a simple definition, is, you know, a person enjoying the legal rights that a state or a country gives you. But it's also, uh, a citizen is also uh, somebody who takes part in decision making. Uh, hopefully, uh, you know, somebody who also is an agent of change and uh, ultimately a force against um, any kind of um, social, political, economic injustice. But this is also a two-way um, relationship. You can't really move on a continuum of citizenship if you don't feel that you are part of this bigger narrative. And this is where I think the arts are really cl critical, because the arts are really about what is most intimate to us. It is our story, it's who we are, where we come from, our cultural heritage, our food, how we dress, our body language. And when you do not see yourself represented, when you're, you are not part of this bigger story, you are not going to be able to engage. You are not going to want to engage. And worse, sometimes you are going to be, feel scared to engage. And, you know, the arts are a, a very central role for this feeling of somebody feeling valued and part of this um, bigger story. And in the Middle East, I can say that, you know, that intersection of the arts and the civil society and the arts and the personal narrative is still the most contentious and is still the most repressed. Um, and if I, if there, you know, an example of this is that during the Arab Spring, you know, a lot of things that was a sh short window of time, but, you know, that a lot of debate exploded in societies. People finally felt that they could say things, they could debate things. And that overspilled on a lot of um, places in public life, including the cultural sector. So, uh, you know, that sort of debate in the country. And one, one example is that a, um, in, in Jordan, actually, a young curator um, uh, came up with a project uh, to encapsulate this, came up with a project called the Complaint Choir. And those were public workshops open to the community when everybody could sign up, and people would sign up, people who had never joined the choir, um, and collectively, they would agree on what they wanted to complain about. Huh. And they would actually write the lyrics together, rehearse together. Now, this is huge, right? They, they would rehearse together and then take this choir 
across the country. Now, you know, that is citizenship as well. You know, to collectively come together mm -hmm. and to take a stand and to decide what is it that you're unhappy about and to constructively create a narrative around it, rehearse it and engage in a creative process and take it around the country. And those are, you know, those are critical moments in the society. Those are practice safe spaces for people to engage together and to be able to start using the tools that are available to them to then take the next step. So this is interesting because you're really talking about communities creating their own spaces. But I think, Lian, the work that you've done is often looking at, say, uh, arts audiences being brought into a process but of interpreting existing work and how that starts to shift. Is there this difference then between um, a community creating its own arts and own arts practice and social practice and then an arts institution actually creating a space for them and then working with them and what does what does that difference start to look like or do well for me um, referencing Stephen's point that it's a 360 degree idea about participation and that participation or audience engagement is definitely not a monolith. It's a series of experiences and exchanges that can happen in a wide variety of ways, both live and digital. But my focus has, has been most recently on providing opportunities for audiences to interpret the meaning and value of a work of art in a, in a public way. So with each other in a public space, because that's the history of the arts. It's a, it's a global history. My work has been with the Western tradition, but what we know is that the meaning and value of a work of art up until the end of the 19th, 19th century was always in the hands of the audience. The audience was the expert. The audience was collectively and individually in charge of saying, this is valuable, this means this, this means that, here's how I'm gonna put it to use in my own personal life and in society's life. And you're talking about rehearsing uh, citizenship. You know, there's wonderful stories in the history of the, of the arts tradition about people doing just that. There's a famous story about a French uh, man who was typically seen in the audience in the 18th century in uh, emerging uh, boulevard theaters in Paris, um, uh, standing up and rehearsing the French Revolution, essentially. <laughs> you know, so we have examples of this throughout time, really back to the ancient period. What does that mean? What do we, what do we say about our collective response and, and uh, responsibilities when we have audiences who have been quieted for about a century and who no longer know how to interpret? Well, this actually, I mean, we had a conversation earlier today talking about, say, sharing culture and share, shareability and selfie culture as yeah. much as anything. How important then is it that people are being able to see themselves within a culture and see themselves represented in terms of practicing democracy, but also actually actively participating in that? Yeah. For the communities you work with, Luce, how does, how does, what is the importance of seeing their own story represented? Well, it's, uh, it's uh, very important because when, when um, Liz, Lynn was saying that to be part of a bigger narrative and if people don't see themselves in that narrative, uh, then that's when artists and other, other um, um, people should jump in and help to make it, to make uh, able to, 
to be part of that narrative. Like, so to speak, uh, I just had an exhibition in the north of Mexico in the city of Matamoros, which has been like uh, destroyed by violence. And the idea of having an installation, a sound installation, that each one of the um, sound devices to reproduce the the soundscapes that were held inside of those of those machines were in the shape of guns, uh, guns that are part in the market, like they're like uh, speakers that in the shape of a real, real gun, and to put it there in Matamoros, and each one of those uh, devices had the sound of a shooting from those same cities that mm -hmm. the show was being exhibited. I thought it was going to be a kind of an experiment that may feel the people. Uh, uh, see themselves as, as, as uh, a violent community, and it got the, the completely opposite effect. Mm -hmm. They felt empowered. They felt like the situation that they're living in is something that is, is uh, validated by a museum, and they felt like they were part of the story, because now in Mexico, uh, those stories, regional stories about violence are being silenced. And so they were, they felt like, they were part of that bigger story, being in a museum and being part of a artwork. And uh, I think uh, in that sense, uh, the, the job of an artist or a researcher, so to speak, a creative researcher, is to find what's going on in a community and help them uh, regain their voice and speak about their problems and uh, help them get the visibility they maybe don't have for a sort of reasons and, uh, and, and make them part of the chorus, you know? Yeah. You know what, what Lynn, what Lynn talked about uh, really changed the way I was gonna talk about citizenship. So that's a good thing, you know, when you change your <laughs> mind, that's like the most important thing actually. Yes. Because citizenship today, when we have the greatest number of refugees in the world since the Second World War, we have so many people living in uh, refugee camps. Citizenship actually has become a form of hard power. It's a threat. There are people who have it. It's just the luck of birth, really. Uh, there are people who are denied it. And I think that you create a very good image, and you, you do too, that we should think about, is that the role of the arts in creating a kind of meta-citizenship for people it's a, it's a, it's a, it is related to interpretation, but it's a very, a kind of a deep concept. Um, you know, I, my beliefs about citizenship are something else. I mean, I think everybody should be allowed to live wherever they want. And I think, too, that countries really are very much, uh, they're there to create war, really, because all the economic activity in the world, you know, the GDP is created in cities. And cities are generally welcoming, uh, welcome to, to migrants. And so, because they need the labor, they need the creativity. And I think that the artists have become very powerful mediators in creating that, a kind of, strange, and I never had this idea before, so thank you, panel, uh, a kind of a, a, a meta, soft power citizenship in place of the hard power state-based citizenship. And they, they have to coexist for a while because we're, we're still far from being a post state society. So I, I don't know how you feel, yeah. but in California, that's where yeah, it would happen yeah. if it would happen anywhere. Lean, <laughs> I see you wanting to jump yeah, in on this. I mean, you know, absolutely. I think, you know, just to go back to the soft power uh, also conversation in relation to what we're, we're saying, um, you know, um, soft power and social transformation are so, and the role of the arts are so sort yeah, of uh, connected because, you know, social transformation is 
you know, everybody thinks when there's a social transformation, there's like action in the street. But it's actually, you know, the, 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 the more important uh, social transformation happens here is when we are able to change mindsets mm -hmm. and we are able to shift societies and we are able to um, bring new narratives and new realities from the ones that are already established or that are being propagated. And in all of these, the artist's role is very central because they're the, usually the first to contest those established norms and systems. And, you know, behind the film or the story or the project or the exhibition or the graffiti on the wall, you know, it's beyond the story. What they're communicating to us are a million other realities that we are invited to think of critically um, and to imagine another way forward. Um, and I, I think that is a very important sort of role that they, they play. This is also the, one of the dangers of the arts, isn't it? We're talking a lot about uh, communities having power, power of expression, freedom of expression, critical thinking. We're also talking about the art market, which is where a lot of money and power is concentrated. And these two ideas are at war with one another, are they not? There is this tension between the radical decentralization or the radical decentering of power that comes when we're talking about democratizing something and the absolute centering of power when we're talking about, say, the elite you know, art market and even talking about our institutions where power is so much concentrated. So when we talk about the arts, we're in some ways talking about two different things. And so this question of can the arts or do the arts make us better citizens? Your point early on, Gail, was that they make us better and worse citizens. And I'm really curious if any of you would like to explore or have thought about this tension between what we talk about of the power of the arts versus the hard power of the arts, which is actually against, in a lot of ways, those notions of transformation and democratization and sort of a decentering of power. I'll jump in just with yeah. a his historical note because I'm a historian, but um, you know, there's always been that tension, right? The arts have always been a tool that comes out of the people and is an expression of a community and of, uh, and of some kind of urge towards civil society. But then power has always seen that oh, that's an excellent opportunity, I think I'll grab that. You know, so Elizabeth I uh, comes into her position in, um, in England in the 16th century, and she recognizes that the morality plays, these were the plays that came out of the Catholic Church, were so embedded in the life of England that there was no way really to shut down Catholicism effectively because these plays were done by the community all year long, but particularly, obviously, in the Lenten season. So what does she do? She makes them illegal. So the power is, in the history is used corrosively um, by co-opting the artistic process, and artists are co-opted along with it. Oh, yeah, um, please. Yeah, I would like to just uh, also jump in this, this part. Uh, when we talk about good and bad citizens, and I'm going to just put an example, since I'm, I'm, I'm an artist. Um, uh, 
when I was starting to do the project that I'm in now that it has to do with, my question is how uh, a, a normal citizen endures the violence that is going on like in my country now. And from that question, I've been driving around, uh, around the whole country, around Mexico, and asking scholars and people that are being like studying human rights, uh, family members that are also kind of uh, organizing themselves in order to to survive the situation that is going on there. And as an artist, when I start approaching uh, uh, certain groups of families that, are, that have been you know, um, hit by this violence, the first thing they say is, what do you want from us? Mm. And that was, was very sad. What do you want? Do you want, are you gonna do an opera? Are you gonna do a uh, like a, a, a dissertation? Are you gonna uh, make a performance from this? We'll provide you that with that and just leave us alone. And that has to do when, when there's no empathy between the artist or the person that is making uh, something from that situation that people is living in. And this lack of empathy uh, doesn't allow you to really Think about the day-to-day -day of these families that are like looking for uh, some uh, uh, comfort, and then as an artist, you need to drop your 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 recorder, drop your camera, and start listening mm. and talking to them and one-to-one, -one and forgetting about your project maybe, because what they what they need these communities is to be uh, to have a voice and somebody to listen, and so. It was sad for me, and we can go back uh, later on on this, but it was sad for me to realize how they feel that artists and reporters and academics, they, they just want to grab a little bit of that flesh, use it, and leave them in the backyard. I mean, leave yeah. the real experience right. in the back. And so you as an artist also have to think if you're gonna commodify that, mm -hmm. that pain, or how do you work when you, you do social practice, you know? I think it's so interesting because, of course, that's how anthropologists were viewed in that very important decolonizing period, roughly, say, the early 70s. You know, it's just the final throes of colonization. And, and uh, anthropologists were seen really as the avant garde of the colonizer and then the end of the colonization uh, period. And I think that what you've touched on is a really an amazing point, which is that now artists can be place, uh, playing that role. Uh, of kind of appropriating people's stories, and we chatted about this a little bit, and I, I was very, I don't know how many of you followed the incident at the Whitney Biennial around, uh, around Emmett Till and the, um, uh, and, and the painting, which had every good intention, as anthropologists and artists generally have good intentions, and what would be the correct solution to this problem was a bit debated in all the newspapers, and I don't know if Chris, you had to write about it as well, but anyway, I then, at the, but roughly the same time that was going on, I saw this marvelous movie by the director uh, who made Selma. She made a fantastic movie called 13th, about the 13th Amendment. And what I noticed was that for every incident in, in, in the history of civil rights that she dealt with, many of which were in the public domain 150 million percent, she asked the family's permission. Mm. And that, you know, and that's very much a kind of conflict between freedom of expression, me, the artist, and this issue that you're raising of, of, of you know, the social 
the social dimension, the social responsibility, the accountability. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is definitely one thing when we're talking about citizenship, accountability exactly. is a really Absolutely. significant part of that. And I, I guess as creative practitioners, there's this line that we're walking then between exploitation uh, and not. And thinking about then, if we're going back to this broader question of do the arts make us better citizens, uh, as an artist, maybe the answer is not always or not necessarily. And so there then become these questions. It's sort of assumed that participation in the arts will make you a better citizen. But I, I think it has that great potential. But does, is, that, is that assumed too easily? Do we actually need to be more critical about that idea of whether even participation in the arts as, say, creator is something that can, can really, that necessarily makes you a better citizen? Well, I think social practice, arts, and, and um, people working in that field have a kind of Hippocratic oath, mm -hmm. which is about doing no harm and also about um, an of, by, and for mentality when working uh, with communities. Because otherwise, you do have a commodification of it, which, which, is, which is not the kind of citizenship that we're seeking, I don't think. Yeah. I think it, ethics, also, sorry, it, just, I'll, I'll just want to drop the word ethics, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. and also yeah. add it no. to the... Yeah, All of these are very, very important when you're working with communities and when you're close to them. And, you know, when there's a, a framework of ethics that is developed and which, you know, people are working within, you know, you're not only, you're not only doing, you know, art, you're not engaged and with them in a creative process. You're some, sometimes a witness, mm -hmm. yeah. mm. a witness to what is going on. And that, that is huge. Mm. Um, and that has huge responsibilities with it. Yes. You're not only a witness, you are chronicling, you are, you, you are documenting things that otherwise are going to disappear. Nobody's um, approaching them in this way. Uh, the journalists look at violence and war and refugee in a way that is very different from an artist that is involved in this community and living with them day to day. Um, and um, I think, you know, the, more, the most powerful um, stories, films and books came out of this intimate relationship because you are able to create the most powerful work when you intimately know your people when you know them politically, socially, uh, historically, culturally. Uh, you know, out of the Syrian uprising, when people were, you know, filming on their phone and sharing with, you know, on the internet what was going on, that was, you know, films were produced, that was beyond the film. That was a moment for everybody to witness, to witness and stand with those people in, in a, in a, through a creative process. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thinking, sort of continuing this idea of participation, is it enough to be an audience to the arts, to, to feel an impact on your sort of critical thinking, your, your citizenship, your creativity? Do we have to be producing ourselves in order to really gain the benefits that we're talking about of, of arts practice? Is, is it, can we just be an audience and gain benefits towards being better citizens to, to the arts? And does it have to be only certain types of arts? You know, is it, um, is it enough to be part of a community art class as opposed to going to a museum? You know, 
what are, what are the conditions, I suppose, that I'm trying to get to that do help the arts uh, enable better citizenship? Well, I, I can't imagine anything better than the fact right now that social media allows people to respond and tell their friends and acquaintances and other people what they're seeing and what they think about it. Because I can't imagine how you can actually be enjoying anything in the arts without wanting to talk to somebody. I, and so I don't even, I thought that that point uh, was a great point from the last, the, the last panel, which is that that's a motivating factor. People can grow beyond the selfie to becoming an art critic, a theater critic, but if it's the selfie that gets them there, I think that's just fine. Yeah. And um, I, 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 uh, I'm really quite delighted with that. I don't know, obviously you're not supposed to talk in the middle of the theater, but maybe, maybe theater they has to change to. a bit. They used to, they used the to exactly, and Chinese opera, they Absolutely. do. And maybe we have to really uh, understand that, that, that we've been suppressing something that's a, I don't know, I, I'd love to know what the rest of you think, yeah. but I can't, yeah. I, you know, I, like, I, I, I especially want to know what the audience thinks eventually. Yeah. It was Absolutely. common to, to be vocal in the, in the theater, in, in a music uh, and dance and theater context until the invention of the electric light bulb, when ah. the audience suddenly went from being lit partially or fully to being <sighs> dark. Huh. At that point, um, in conjunction with a lot of social engineering, it changed, and people were asked to be quiet. How interesting that being seen or not being seen sure. is a big part of having a voice and, and yeah. visibility. Think, just think about a sporting arena. A sporting arena, yeah, you can right. see each other, yeah. and you're allowed to talk to each other. But I don't know what to wear to a sporting arena. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stretching this, you know, seen or not seen, and here or not here, I mean, you know, one of the things that remains a big problem in, in, uh, in the Middle East is access to the arts. And, and partly, partly sure. that is because it's, it's very institutionalized. And, but what happened uh, during that, that period of sort of um, cultural explosion is that the arts came out of the institutions. Mm. They came out and it was um, almost like they, uh, they occupied public spaces with song and dance and graffiti and, and there was this almost participatory art that developed. Anybody could take part. Um, and I think what, what, what this changed as well with it is that for, for you know, artists were creating um, and communities or people were, were able to join and comment, etc. And they were being hosted by institutions, mm. not programmed. <laughs> and that is a very different concept as well. Yeah. When you take ownership, you take back ownership of your process and your space, mm. and you decide when and where and to whom you're going to, uh, you, you, you will share this work with. And that was, was a big change in the way um, art is experienced and shared. And, um, you know, there are um, several festivals in, in Cairo, for example, uh, that um, celebrate art as art as a public space, Al-Fan Midan, for anybody who speaks Arabic, which means that it's, it's public, you can come and join, and they call out the community, people who have never sort of seen a play or took part, taken part in a concert or drawn, and, and they can just enjoy, and it is a space for them to also express themselves and share their story. Yeah, and it's definitely something we see in the museum sector now is 
Uh, museums actually almost trying to co-opt this. This notion of the participatory museum is in some ways a response to uh, how these things play out in spaces and then trying to figure out, well, how does my institution work within this? Uh, Absolutely. Institutions are increasingly trying to find ways to actually reach out yes. and sometimes take work out um, and invite uh, uh, you know, people um, to uh, take part in the creative process or um, sort of um, uh, use the, the, the creative process or the work to actually um, uh, uh, trigger conversations that need to happen because those spaces have to see themselves as well as conveners when there isn't an alternative yes. in society. Sometimes there is, but sometimes there isn't. And cultural institutions, having realized that a lot of these movements have not uh, borne fruit the way they had hoped, perhaps, is because civil society was weak. Perhaps there is need for more spaces to emerge that can act as conveners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to flip just to a question that sort of came out of some of our earlier discussions from one of the earlier panels uh, and thinking about debate, conflict, pain and dialogue, which was this idea that uh, I think really struck a nerve with me when we were hearing from the former panel. I'm really interested in how important dialogue with people who disagree with us is and where that falls into these discussions with the arts. Because I think it can actually be very easy um, to end up talking to other people just like yourself and particularly in institutions but even within other forms of art practice is we, we uh, it's very easy to sort of become closeted within your own space, your own uh, scene. So I'm curious about how we talk about and how important it is that we have dialogues that are difficult and how we make that happen. Bruce, do you want to start? Yeah, I think um, it's linked to what we were talking about before as well. Um, artists become facilitators when they have this kind of a social practice. Uh, that is, the media is there for everybody to use. Um, it has been important for the whole 20th century. I mean, the, the evolution of media has been like, uh, has changed the way we, we experience life. Mm -hmm. And uh, as, an, as artists, we cannot just keep on using the media for ourselves and just to, to uh, promote or put in the world our, our, the way we see the reality, but it will be better that's, that's my, my take on this, uh, to facilitate for other, for communities to use the same tools and to, to find their voice, to, to, to expand their ideas, instead of trying to interpret or to be the ones that are like the translators of what, what's going on. And so that will give them more power to these communities and it will help this uh, to have a real dialogue because if, uh, if, if we don't, uh, listen to the other, then we're going to be just in the selfie culture, just trying to reproduce ourselves and our ideas here and there and all the galleries around and museums around. And the idea will be better. Museums, they have, they have to do what they have to do. Galleries, they have to, I mean, the market is there, uh, you know, but the communities, they need to, to, to grasp those tools, to use them and to use them to put their voice out. I think that's, that's very important. I think it's the huge question that, you, that you've raised. 
uh, um, some other colleagues will maybe be able to correct this, but my, un my understanding of the data is that as far as institutional culture goes, we really haven't moved the dial very significantly. Yeah. That um, attendance and participation, if, to say I represent a lot of institutional culture, and I think people here do too, it's basically people of higher education um, and uh, who, who are habituated by various means by participating in the arts. So yes, I think that the question is how to get beyond that. And, and the data actually is even though the, the population has tripled, the actual number amount of arts participation uh, has not tripled, we'll put it that way. So I think that is the big question, and I think it's a great question to ask here. And I think do we really, I think one of the institutional questions is do we really want to talk to those people? Not that comfortable. Um, and uh, you go where they go. Uh, you have to be outside your four walls, because those four walls are not that comfortable. Yeah. So I don't know. Well, Maybe I you think have you, a suggestion. Well, your, your point is, do we really want to know what people are thinking about the work that we produce is a really important one. Do we authentically want to know what audiences think? And I think the answer generally is no, because in the Western tradition, um, the whole professionalization of the arts, and Stephen referred to that, and that, that trajectory has taught us that that hierarchy of value in which we as the gatekeepers, as the professional arts workers, whether we're artists or presenters or educators, we hold the key to what it really means. And it's a hierarchy. And to let go of that and to open up that process and to say, you know, whatever your take on it, no matter how uneducated it may be, is okay, is something that most professionals are unwilling to do because their entire education and professional life has been geared around knowing more, knowing so better. Yeah. So this is a huge paradigm shift, but I'm personally convinced, and, and in my work I, I really talk about this quite a bit, that if we do not make that shift, we will not have an audience. Yeah. Uh, and that mm -hmm. is actually, so we are, we are actually at the end of our, our a lot of time, which is an incredible place to finish on. I mm -hmm. think we're about to go into audience questions and we're really looking forward to hearing the things that you've been thinking about and what you're wanting to respond to from this. Hello, I'm a Spanish composer. Uh, my name is Juan Simarro. Uh, I think, of course, uh, arts uh, can do a better citizens. The question is uh, how? Uh, that's the, the, the reason uh, why I want not to do another question is how is to share. I, I, I can, okay. <laughs> I, I do a symphony uh, with the UNESCO and uh, Greenpeace supporting uh, titled Symphony for a Better World, in which uh, I, I use, I compose for student and professional musician and uh, for children and adult choir, without words. And the idea was, uh, I'm optimist, and I want to, to do a better world, of course, but I, I know that I'm alone, I can't do that. So at the end of the concert, I want to, to encourage to the people um, to, to do a better uh, circle, to be a, a better relation, Sorry with my English. <laughs> a better relationship with his family, with his uh, co-worker, with his friends, 
And if every people at the end of the concert uh, do the same with his circle, uh, then we do a better world. So I would like to, to share my symphony with all of you, if you want, and you can write to me and we can speak. And, and please, let's share music for doing uh, a better world together. Okay. Lovely. Uh, so Juan, thank you. Huh. Um, hi, I'm Stacy Chaikin. I'm a theater artist living in Los Angeles. I, I'd like all of you to please um, respond to the, I think the challenge is getting people who we don't know and don't think we have anything to say that they'll like into a room. Um, and uh, thank you, Gail, for your appreciation of California. But, um, uh, and I'm very grateful to live here, but I think that California can be an incubator instead of a bubble. And, um, and some of the really powerful stuff that can be created here because we have the freedom to, and we have a lot of like-minded people around us to help us, needs to go forth from here and meet other people. Um, so do you know any situations where artists are doing things like that? Because I think there has to be a profound intentionality because it's really bloody hard. So uh, do you all want to take sort of a quick couple of sentences looking at how we respond to basically breaking out of our bubble? Um, I don't, yes, I don't think we should find ways to bring people in a room. I think we should go find them. Um, I think from a regional perspective in the Middle East, we are still trying to talk to each other because mobility and, um, has always been a problem. And the way we do that is through the arts. There are amazing platforms whose roles is just to be connectors. So they, um, they link cities that are otherwise divided and they link them through artwork and exchanges. And this is how we talk to each other. Because otherwise, sometimes moving from one country to the other is impossible. So the arts become connectors. And we, you know, a biennale can unfold in uh, Sharjah and animate Beirut and Ramallah and Baghdad and Damascus in ways that no other sector can and engage people in conversations around a thematic, whereas it would otherwise be impossible. Yeah, I, I think you have to just go uh, to where the people are. And I'm sure you've given it a lot of thought and maybe hard to fund, but it's, it can be determined where those other people are. And I, I think that the arts have to go there. And that doesn't mean performing in shopping malls either. Uh, well, shopping malls are about to disappear in any case, so that it would be, it would be, it would be, it would be a bad strategy. But, but, but to think, of, think of, about where they are. Yeah. I might actually just give you two quick responses myself. Um, a really good example, so the National Museum of African American History and Culture are doing a really wonderful job with, say, their social media going to like black Twitter and things like that. So actually being in dialogues and entering dialogues, but also listening uh, in other spaces that might be often neglected. But a simple thing that everyone can do, uh, a lot of people have say at the moment been on their social media sites, unfollowing people who have different opinions from them. And 
it, it's, it's a very common thing, or, or, or stopping seeing those dialogues, because often those dialogues are hard and unpleasant, and they make you feel all of the feelings. And a simple thing you can do is actually listen to them and pay attention, even when they're hard, and even when you don't agree, and actually asking, you know, if you have a friend who sits on a different space in the political spectrum from you, for instance, actually talking to them about it and trying to do it in a way where you let their responses dictate, like, you hear them as opposed to just stopping. And I think just simple things like actually tuning in and listening to those things as opposed to... Um, blocking someone or unfriending them, uh, those sorts of things can actually make a big difference. John Moscone, YBCA. Um, can I just want to push, amplify Stacey's question a little bit, because um, the question of, like, can participation in the arts make us better citizens, I just wonder if we could reframe the question, throw back at you. Can, part, can arts participate in the world in ways where people can become more engaged in the rights and responsibilities afforded citizens? Right? I think we keep talking about yeah. participating in the arts as right. a route to right. citizen, good citizenry. When in fact, I wonder what we're doing right. to partner. So this isn't about listening to people on the street. I think that's kind of 101, mm -hmm. right? If we're not doing that, I don't know why we're having this conversation. What partnerships are we looking at outside of our field to address much bigger issues? Because to say that we have the key to citizenship is kind of a false statement. And I'd rather push it back to you all to see what, what you all are doing, because you all are, I can tell, I've looked at you all up. I'd just love to you to talk about that a little bit. I'm involved with, with an organization called Art Up um, out of Pittsburgh and Baltimore. And a project that we're running right now and have been for a number of years is called Sites of Passage. And what it does is to match up artists from the United States with artists from other countries. The first iteration was in Egypt and just happened to coincide with the revolution. The second was in Palestine and Israel. And the third going on right now is in South Africa. And the goal there is to exchange practices so that those artists can then move into communities in a more effective way. Um, these are all artists working for social change. And another example would be the, the wide world of theater of the oppressed, the technique based on Augusto Ball's work. That Theater of the Oppressed is an international organization and practice, and that work is happening everywhere, and that is all about using the tools of theater in other contexts. It's not about making theater. It's about using those tools to affect social change and social justice and progress in other spheres of industry in, in the world. So um, Google theater of the oppressed and you'll see some pretty amazing examples. And I noticed you were also going to speak, Luis. Yeah, like for example, I'm, I'm working now with, in a project in the south of Texas and south of San Antonio, and uh, it's about, uh, yes, creating a tool like an, or like an artwork that will help as a, as a phone application to go out and record some sounds and put some pictures on those sounds and tag the things that you're listening to. And that's a 30% of the, of the art project. The rest of the project, the 70%, is to 
fulfill an agenda that has been missing in the south of San Antonio, which is let's go out, let's walk, let's sound walk, let's start listening to our surroundings, let's start paying attention with what's in my neighborhood, the trees in my neighborhood, the, the uh, animals, uh, call them uh, birds, dogs, uh, uh, feral cats, whatever, record them, looking at them, and, and then after all that is made with an application is, that is aimed to to younger generations, then you can also go back home and share that experience with your family. That is, you can go and check on a, a map of, uh, of uh, the south of San Antonio, where is included all the missions, the river of San Antonio, the Medina River as well, several air, uh, green areas in San Antonio. And the idea is to put the younger students to go out and, and, and be their own, uh, like re, re, there will be registering what's in, in their surroundings. So there's an, uh, some parts that are education, some other part like, like is like listening, start like me being more sensible or sensitive around uh, what is uh, uh, surrounding you in your reality. And then there comes the artist. The artist just is a facilitator for all that to happen. And this is gonna be unveiled like in November and, and the, the, uh, it's, gonna, it's gonna happen around a symposium of, of uh, art and sciences. But it's not just for, for the scholars that are gonna be part in that symposium, it's for the city uh, the San Antonio city to really embrace that application and use it as a way of, of putting themselves out, but uh, with the agenda which is uh, sound studies, listening to your surrounding, uh, um, finding the, the special issues in your own community, you know, and you being the producer yourself, not the artist. I'm not the producer of the sounds or the pictures. The, the community has to be. If nobody embraces that application, then the experiment is a failure. And I think I'm going to build on that and just also push back at your question, which I think was really great that you push back on sort of where the discussion was starting. One of the things that I was thinking about in preparing for this panel and this discussion was, you know, we talk about does the arts make us better citizens, but if you think about the people who are most often able to engage in the arts, it's people who already have the gift of pretty established citizenship. Uh, it's, it is usually people who have access and education as default. So I think we need to think about not just uh, what happens when citizenship and its rights uh, are not assumed for you, but also what happens when the arts are not assumed for you. What happens when we actually can't assume that someone does have access to the arts, because even when it, they're there in the society, that doesn't necessarily mean that the arts are accessible. I kind of want to challenge you to go a little bit old school, um, back to when we took art appreciation, and we took music appreciation, and we learned about, I'll say, classical art, which was often paid for by the wealthy or the church, um, and the music was paid for by the wealthy and the church, but that has become part of the cultural heritage. And I would like for you to uh, talk a little bit about what it means when perhaps you don't have access to that cultural heritage through lack of funding, uh, lack of classes in the schools, lack of support from the government to, to have access to that. Mostly what I'm hearing is talking about having people coming in off the street, so to speak, and participating. But what about the cultural background that we used to think that everybody had. It's very important 
to get out of our temples. Some of the temples might be very humble, but one of the speakers earlier today, you know, we built these buildings, we created these places, we have our organizations, we've professionalized, and we're very proud of it. And that's really good, um, but we know it's not meeting the kind of broader need that you're talking about. And so we need to get outside the temples, right? Now, however humble those, those temples might be, and that means working in partnership to pick up the point of the gentleman from the YMCA or YWCA, the, the Y movement. And, um, and the libraries, of course, have been brilliant at this. I mean, the libraries are really the shining star in terms of our, uh, our cultural world and go to where people are and develop projects with them. And it has to be done as a partnership. It's not inherently individual, it is more organizational. And I guess my work um, has demonstrated that uh, theater probably has much better uh, initiatives, much deeper, much more lively than museums, where museums tend to be much more tied to our buildings. And, um, and so I think it's, again, learning from each other and maybe having a showcase of projects that do that and where they work, where they fail, but it's going to take funding. And one of the great things about this country, by which I mean the United States, is the principle of plural funding. It's the obverse of that you don't have this great minister of culture. On the other hand, you have a huge diversity of funders in your foundation system. Like this is, this is fantastic because it's a plurality of voices. It gets, in many instances, beyond um, the wealthy power structures. Also, some of them are involved in that, in that too. But now we're in a retrenchment period where they're saying, well, gee, we need to go after public health. We need and they're thinking that the arts aren't that important anymore. And so I think there is a bit of a crisis to get to the point that your question wants to get to. And uh, hopefully a session like this whole day is going to give us the tools to reinvigorate that sector for the arts. Can I build on those two uh questions and, and I, I think um, um, you know when we when we who are engaged in the arts broaden how what we want to do with the arts and uh, really try and bring the arts into the wider conversation is when we can actually reach out to more people. When we expect that the people who we want to reach out are going to understand art in what, the way we want them or the way we have been educated as how we need to understand the arts, I think we have this, we, we, we hit a wall. And when we, um, you know, your point is what, you, what are you doing in terms of going and, and using the arts to make better citizen, is, is when we actually bring in the arts in bigger conversations. The art is not something that happens on its own there. And I think, at least in the Middle East, it has to do with how we have been um, teaching it or not teaching it. So it is something you learn and then you leave it there and you don't practice it and you don't transfer it to anything. And what we're trying to do in the think tank that I work in um, at the Middle East Institute, this is a think tank. We do policy analysis on the Middle East. But our arts and culture program really is not only about the arts. And, you know, it's really about offering another way to understand a culture, to reach out to it through the arts, 
whether you're an artist or you're not an artist, and whether you have this artistic background or not, it is a way for you to build people-to-people -people connections and reach out and understand. So arts has a space, I think, at every table. This is Randy Korn. Um, thank you for a very thought-provoking conversation. And um, I'm a little nervous to ask this question, um, but it occurs to me in the conversation about cultural heritage um, is if, if we in these larger cities, um, and maybe I should just speak for myself, if I, oh, who lives in a larger city, um, and am now visiting one, um, if we're being arrogant about what we mean by cultural heritage and the arts. So I've had the opportunity, uh, fortunately, to visit two uh, very different rural areas, one in what's called the North Country in the Adirondacks, upstate New York, and one in southwestern Virginia, where, um, where the cultural heritage is rich, it's just different from this cultural heritage. And so um, I, I don't know so much that, and I guess I'm thinking this through, do we, I, I, don't, I don't think it's right for us to be arrogant, I think we need to bring art to other cultures in rural areas, they have a really rich heritage. It's just completely different from the rich heritage yeah. Yeah. we have in larger cities mm -hmm. about what, what cultural heritage and what the arts mean. So just connecting it to what Stephen was saying earlier, that broadening what we mean by the arts. But I, I hate to feel that I'm, uh, you know, that I'm arrogant, but I wonder if I am um, in thinking about you know, what I view as the arts, but, but those two experiences that I had in the North Country and, Southwest, and in Southwestern Virginia, it's like it just struck me um, that their cultural heritage is as rich as mine, it is just completely different. So it's really just a comment, but I'd love to hear what you all think about that. I, I, I don't think it's as extreme for everybody in this room, by the way. Lots of people come from small towns and lots of people have experiences of small towns and uh, so on. Uh, but I, 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 I was invited to help a group establish an art center in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Very small. Anybody ever been to Pine Bluff? Okay. And I, I went there and, um, and they, they had a, actually a terrific plan and they called it the A-plus Art Center. And you know, over a couple of days I had to learn about their cultural values. I mean, so first of all, if you're interested in learning, you're, you're going to learn. And we, uh, you, so I don't think that, I think everybody in this room, if you had an opportunity, I don't think you'd be arrogant. I think people around these tables would be really pretty fascinated. But the amazing thing was that we, we developed a kind of a plan and uh, so on, and then they had the uh, media came, and the director of the center said, and Gail Lord came, and she treated us as though we were the Louvre. So I think that the point is, now at that time in my own evolution, I mean, the thought that me, that I'd ever be working for the Louvre was so completely absurd. And if, in fact, I've done many projects for the Louvre now, but, the, but I, think it's, I think it's just about understanding that we all learn from each other. And uh, so I think it's great that you raised it. I, I myself don't see it. I mean, that's the richness of life and humanity and uh, uh, how you get there, how you go there. I think if people really want to do it in this country, above all, you can find the funding. That is the amazing thing about America. 
I don't know if you would agree compared, I mean, even to the Middle East, yeah, where there's like yeah. tons of money from oil yeah. and gas, but it's not. Oh, no, it's, it's not very all controlled. invested in the arts, by the yeah, way. No, but, it, but, but there are societies, and many societies, including in Europe, and I, I should, are very controlled. And here, the diffusion of power can be so irritating. I'm a Canadian, so I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying. But, uh, but on the other hand, it presents such tremendous opportunity. So that, that'd be my take. And I would just connect the comment about arts appreciation with Randy's comment. So we have a context for arts appreciation in the United States and in, in, in other places, I think, as well. That is based on this hierarchy that we've been talking about and on a standard of what constitutes aesthetic art or serious art and, and how that's different from arts that are folk-oriented or community-based. And Steve was talking about Liz Lerman's wonderful thing that she does when she speaks, where she's talking about the hierarchy, and she just says, you just got to do this with it. That's yeah. all we have to do mm -hmm. is just go like this and see it as horizontal so that folk art and community art and all kinds of um, audience-centered practices are on the same continuum with the professional or aesthetic or serious arts, whatever term you want to use. So when we talk about arts appreciation, we have to think about what that means. Does that mean only that everybody needs to study what we taught in the 20th century? And how do we open that up so that it's an, it's an appreciation of a wider field of art making, which is really hard stuff. My name is Gurley Collado, and I have the pleasure of serving as the Community Engagement Program Director at the Music Center here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for all of your comments, and um, particularly the very last uh, piece that you just mentioned about this arts continuum. Um, as a, a large institution here in Los Angeles, um, I'm always very mindful about the continuum of arts um, experiences as well as practices here in Los Angeles. So I wonder if uh, we continue to ask our, uh, the question, what do we value as an organization and what do our communities, community members value and how do those intersect and begin to work in that way? Um, I wonder if that could be a way to kind of start orienting ourselves to really think about how to better serve the people that we are attempting to serve as public benefit institution. One of the things to remember and that can be really hard for arts organizations is that often community members can need and want different things even within one community with one community organization and so uh, Often museums talk about serving their publics or, you know, formal institutions talk about serving their publics, but they're still picturing a, a specific public in mind and actually broadening that out very deliberately and uh, thinking about the different needs that different publics within their own institutions, but also the not being served by their institutions is part of, part of this questioning, I think. Do you want to respond to this sort of question, any of you, as we wrap up? Well, one word that hasn't been used that much today, which is really interesting, is excellence. And I think just the corollary to you take the hierarchy and you mm -hmm. do this to it, is you have to deeply understand what is excellence at every point on that mm -hmm. uh, continuum. That it's not we go from low to high, and I think uh, the professor uh, Tapper said that, Stephen said that. 
it's not that you do that, it's that you recognize and that you have to develop the expertise. Yeah. Not everybody has that. And that maybe is what true curatorship is, by the way, rather than saying it's in the service of authenticating work so that they can be for sale at Sotheby's at a higher price. But a <laughs> profound form of curatorship is to understand how excellence can be achieved at every point along that continuum. And that, that's a big challenge for our time. Great. And that's all the time we have for this fantastic panel. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs>